if you were here, you heard me talk about the whole issue of divorce and um, let you know, we don't want to just uh, discourage you from getting divorced. We want you to, to encourage you in your marriage and to build that relationship up into all that the Bible uh, calls it to be. Um, one of the ways we want to bless a new marriage uh, is with a bridal shower for Amber Osler uh, on June 13th at 2 o'clock at Cindy Rosetto's house. Um, we want to help uh, encourage Amber and Aaron as they start off on their married life together here later this summer. And so encourage all of you ladies to uh, go and be a blessing uh, to Amber and, uh, and her new husband. Um, uh, also, do really encourage you to participate in that marriage retreat. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, there's a schedule there in the uh, bulletin along with that sign-up sheet. I'm going to go. Karen and I are going to go. And in spite of that, we'd like you to go and, um, and have some fun with us uh, and with one another. It'll be a great time just to get away for uh, about three days and really build uh, your relationship together. You know, sometimes... Uh, you get busy as a couple, and it becomes the cook and the maid married to the gardener and the mechanic. And it's just, not, it's just very functional relationship and not very fun. And we want to encourage the fun aspect uh, of your marriage along with uh, some instruction there. So um, I am glad that you are all here this morning. I'm Joe. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to be looking at uh, Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 13 to 31. And want to uh, just begin by saying that, that human beings are hardwired. We are the only creature on earth who are hardwired for worship. And it's not really a question of whether or not we as people will worship as much as it is what we will worship and how. And there are all kinds of things that people treat as religions. Uh, there are people who worship the earth. There are people who worship science. There are people, a lot of people in our day who worship themselves. And the self has become an object of worship. Uh, that's why they're willing to make sacrifices of, uh, you know, great sums of money to attain some sort of perfect idealized shape, right? Uh, or lip size or whatever, right? Um, Never understood that exactly. But there are people who are into these kinds of forms of worship. There are, of course, lots of religions, you know, Buddhism and Islam and Zoroastrianism and, and uh, Hinduism and Christian science and all of these things, right? And if you listen to a Muslim, uh, he's going to tell you about how to find redemption through obeying the five pillars, Right? If you listen to a Buddhist, he's going to tell you about the Noble Eightfold Path. If you uh, listen to a Christian, uh, uh, you know, Christian scientist, he's going to tell you about how everything negative that happens to you is mental, and what you need to do is realign your thinking so that you can realize how truly great life can be. If you listen to a Scientologist, he's going to tell you about these little critters that live inside your body that you've got to somehow expunge to get at higher and higher levels of consciousness. And by the way, this will be a very expensive process, right? Um, so we hope you have lots of money. 
Uh, if you talk to an environmentalist, they're going to talk to you about redemption through recycling and the installation of twisty light bulbs and composting and uh, a vegan diet and driving a Prius, right? Uh, every religious belief, every system of worship that human beings have ever devised has some means for attaining redemption. At the center of every belief system is a recognition that we as human beings are screwed up and broken. And all kinds of ways then get offered for how to attain redemption of a salvation from the messed up condition in which we find ourselves. And uh, even, in, even if you listen to someone who is totally naturalistic, who believes in no outside causes beyond the universe's own existence, they're still going to offer you some way of attaining meaning and purpose in life. Because we need that. We have to believe that there is some reason why we are here greater than some sort of cosmic accident in which the roll of the dice came up our number in Monte Carlo. Or the Rue Willette wheel went around just right and we happened to show up. Uh, If you believe that, that's a very depressing way to go through life. And human beings will not live that way. People who really believe that very often commit suicide. And, And... and women and woman is a are by nature worshippers of something, and are searching for a way to find redemption. And at the center of every important belief is the search for redemption. And here this morning, Jesus is going to give some clues to how to find real redemption, real eternal life. Uh, so, if you've got your Bible, go to Mark chapter ten. We're going to pick up in verse thirteen. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing ye lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. 
Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, let's look at verse 13. Jesus, give you a little bit of background here, the setting. Jesus is in Perea, which is a region on the other side of the Jordan, which is uh, ruled by Herod Antipas at this time. Uh, it's the one, it's the, he's the Herod who chopped off John the Baptist's head. It's in Jordan, as it happens, um, where uh, the Merdians are ministering. Um, it's, uh, he has spent a little bit of time there. He actually, uh, all told, spends about six months in Perea. Uh, but you just get in Mark you get this very compressed uh, schedule. Uh, in fact, one of the more common words in Mark is the word immediately. And immediately this happened, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened. Because Mark is giving you the, the Reader's Digest version of Jesus' ministry. I mean, he's going to just take, take three years and compress it down to 16 chapters. I mean, just whoo. And six months gets about two chapters. In, in Mark, okay, just little snapshots of interactions. Uh, and Jesus is in Perea, and people are coming to him, and they know that Jesus is not just some traveling rabbi who's saying good things. There's something unique about him. At a very minimum, he is like one of the prophets of the Old Testament. And so they're coming to him with their kids and asking him to bless their kids, and the disciples, being as clueless as they generally are, um, are driving off all these families with kids, saying, get out of here. The teacher doesn't want to be bothered with your child. Go away. Now, that's a weird uh, reaction, okay? Because look, look back, if you've got your Bible open here, go back to chapter uh, 9, verse 37. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. In other words, Jesus says that children are not unimportant to God, and he has said it not that long ago. And on top of that, he says that to welcome a little child, to minister to a little kid, is just the same as ministering to Jesus himself. Did they get that? No. <laughs> they did not get that. And so they're saying, get out of here, kid. Go away. Okay? And Jesus, uses a, the text here uses a very unusual word with reference to Jesus. It's the word indignant. You only see Jesus indignant like twice in the whole book. This is one of the spots. Jesus is upset, peeved. Torqued. I mean, whatever word you want to use, he's upset. What are you doing? He says, he gives him a double command. He, he's, he's going to teach him one more time. Look, guys, you're not getting it here. Children matter to God. And they matter just as much as adults. And he gives him a double command. He says, uh, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Now, that's, that's two-sided, okay? 
let them come means start allowing them to come. All right? It's not just a passive let them come. It's, a, it's an imperative, start allowing this to happen. And he says, and do not hinder, literally reads, stop preventing them from coming. In other words, not only start allowing, but stop preventing. Uh, you guys are getting in the way, in other words, of what I'm trying to do. And these kids are important. Now, um, let, let's step back here just a second and take kind of a bird's eye view of this text. The whole thrust of this of this text from verse 13 to 31 is answering the question, who can be saved? Who can be saved? Remember, the focus of every religious belief is on redemption. How can you be saved? And also, who can be saved? And Jesus is trying to answer that question in his interactions. And one of the people who are part of the group who can be saved are children. You do not have to be an adult to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, Jesus puts it this way, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Not necessarily these particular kids, but kids like this can be part of the kingdom of God. Even as little children, you can come into the kingdom of God. In fact, I'm living proof of the fact. I came to Christ in Sunday school as a four-year-old. Uh, lots of people come to Christ that way. They enter into the kingdom of heaven as little kids. Now, can you come as an adult too? Absolutely. In fact, you can come hanging on a cross at death's door. But you can come. It doesn't matter how you come. It's more that you come. But Jesus says little kids can be followers of Jesus too. In fact, he goes one step further than that and says that no one who come, unless you come like a child to the kingdom of God, you can't even go in. And what's he mean by that? Um, what he means is that, you know, the kids come to Jesus in complete trust. Whatever he says to them, they believe. And that's still true of little kids today. If you share the gospel with little kids at VBS or through Iwana or whatever, they believe you. They trust you. And they're coming to, they come to Jesus trusting him that he, has, that he has a divine plan for them, that he loves them, that he died on the cross for their sins and was raised from the dead. You tell a little kid that nine times out of ten, they believe it. You tell an adult that, you know, it takes time for us to be cynical and jaded, <laughs> okay, and to distrust people. And sometimes that, that distrust and cynicalness uh, applies as people come to Jesus, too. And Jesus says, you can't come like that. You've got to come like a little kid. You've got to come with full and complete trust in me, just like little kids do. If that kind of faith, the kind that says, Father, I trust you. I believe what you said about Jesus is true, that he was the son of God and also the son of David who died on the cross for my sins personally and was raised from the dead. That's the only kind that works. You can't, you can't believe in Jesus and anything else. 
It's complete trust in Him. So children, those who place their faith in Christ like a kid, are those who can be saved. That's one category. Okay, now we get another one in verses 17 to 27. This little story um, makes it clear that the rich are a question mark. By the way, if you live in America, you're part of this. Okay? Um, Two-thirds of the world lives on less than $2 a day. Okay? So if you live in America, you're part of the rich. Amen? Um, Our dogs and cats eat better than about half the world. The rich are a question mark. They might be prosperous in the here and now, but as Jesus makes it clear, uh, the rich aren't necessarily at the top of God's list for who he saves. So put a question mark after the rich. Um, he comes, this rich man comes to Jesus with a question, and he says this. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is an interesting way to ask the question on several different levels. Okay, First of all, the normal way to address a Jewish rabbi was just that, rabbi, teacher. But this guy recognizes that there's something a little different about Jesus from the standard rabbi, and so he says to him, good teacher. Um, You notice here also that he is eager to see Jesus. How does he come? Running. Comes running up to Jesus. Uh, You see that he is also... Um, you see that he is also someone who has a degree of humility to him. Because what's he do after he gets to Jesus? He gets on his knees to ask the question. And then he says, what must I do? In other words, he's looking for a list. Okay, Jesus, how do I get redemption? What must I do? What's the list of things I have to do? What's on my, on my to-do list? to make sure that I get into heaven. And then he uses this word, which is really interesting. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this guy is, uh, we, this, is the, this is traditionally called the story of the rich young ruler. Now, you have to go to Luke to find out that he's a ruler, but here you find out that he's a, here's, he's a young man and he's wealthy. Now, in the Middle East at this time, there was only one way to be both rich powerful, and young. And that is, you had to inherit your position and your money from someone else. Okay? Still true, by the way, in a lot of the Middle East. Uh, It's not an economy like we have where there's a lot of upward mobility. It's, uh, if you are rich and young uh, and in a position of power, very likely you inherited your money and, and your power from someone older than you right? And you receive your riches and power at a young age only because someone older than you who had them before you is dead, okay? So he asks, thinking, according to his life experience, how do I inherit eternal life, right? And he thinks that that eternal life can be inherited just like money and power can be. And so it's a good question that, that the man asks, but it, it reveals some bad assumptions that Jesus is going to correct. And so the first one he addresses is, 
the way that the guy addressed him. He says, you called me good teacher. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, he's trying to, with that statement, correct two bad assumptions. Number one, that humans can be relatively good, and they can't, and they aren't. The only one who is good is God. All of our relative goodness does not count as far as God is concerned. It's only absolute goodness that matters. Uh, And on top of that, I think he's trying in a veiled way to point the man to his own deity. That if I am in fact good, as you've described me as being, then, and it's true that only God is good, and I'm good, then who am I? Follow the syllogism there? Only God is good, I'm good, therefore I'm God. Right? He's trying to point the man that way. Uh, relative goodness is not good enough. Uh, and so the man, so, but, so he goes on. He says, no one is good except God. You know the commandments. In other words, you want to inherit eternal life? Fine. What are the commandments? You know them. Uh, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now, these six commandments are the second half of the, of the, uh, of the Ten Commandments. The first four have to do with God. The last six have to do with your relationship with others. Um, And the guy says, well, all these I've kept since I was a boy. In other words, I had my bar bar mitzvah at 13 or, or at 12, and Ever since then, I've been obedient to the commandments because that was the age when I entered into the community and had responsibility for them, and so I've kept them all. And Jesus says something interesting. First of all, notice the text says that he looked at him and loved him. He had compassion on this man because this guy is really actually trying to do the right thing from a human standpoint. Jesus says, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And the text says something very sad, that the man went away sad because he had great wealth. What was Jesus trying to identify? The fact that while he may have kept part of the commandments, he hadn't committed adultery, he hadn't murdered, he'd honored his father and mother, hadn't cheated anybody, hadn't stolen. He hadn't given false testimony. He had broken the first one. That you shall, I am the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods before me. Because what was this man giving his life in sacrifice to? His money. He had built an altar of mammon in his heart, though he did not bow before one in his, with his body, right? And the man went away sad. And this guy was content to be relatively good, and most of us are. If you talk to the average non-Christian out there and you ask them, are you going to go to heaven? A lot of times what you will get is a a very equivocal answer. 
well, I'm not as bad as some people. And as if God grades, you know, kind of on a sliding scale. And we don't know how bad you have to be to go to hell exactly. It's just that it's worse than me. Right? The standard is always to the left of me somewhere. Right? I mean, I don't, I, I've never got an opportunity to interview, you know, like a mass murderer, like a, like a Pol Pot or, you know, a Bashar Assad or some, somebody like that, you know, a Saddam Hussein could figure. But I wonder if they feel the same way. Well, I'm better than a lot of people. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, if anybody deserves to go to hell, you do. <laughs> okay? Um, but Jesus is saying this. That relatively good doesn't cut the mustard with God. Relatively good is not good enough. Uh, And then he says this, how hard it is for the rich to enter heaven. And the disciples are all confused because in their day there was a Jewish proverb that went this way. Those whom God loves, he maketh rich. Okay? Because in their mind, Divine blessing and material prosperity went together. And so if you were rich, it was obvious that you had the blessing of God. Is that true? Not necessarily. Okay? Does God prosper people who are faithful? Sometimes. Maybe even often. But not inevitably. And so he says this and the disciples go, excuse me? And then Jesus takes it another step further and says, you know what, actually, it's very hard to enter the kingdom of God at all, but it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In in Israel, the largest common land animal was the camel. And the smallest common opening would be the eye of a sewing needle, okay? Okay. And he's like, if you can stick a camel through the eye of a needle, you can get a rich man saved. Now, what if you get on his back and, and whack him really hard with a stick? Is that going to help? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, you're going to have to do something creative to get this dude to flow through there, right? Basically, what he's saying is it's impossible for a rich man to enter heaven. And you might think that, the, that rich people enjoy the special favor of God, but in fact, it's harder for them than anybody else. Why? Because they already have a God they worship very often. And God will not be second to anything or anybody. And the disciples, it says, were even more amazed. Who then can be saved? Well, if not the people that are specially blessed by God, then who? And Jesus makes it even harder yet. He says, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. In other words, the only way that anybody enters into the kingdom of heaven is by the grace and mercy and power and love of God. The only way. With man, it's impossible. You can't possibly be good enough. It's, it, it, the illustration I've used many times as I'm sharing the gospel with people is this. Imagine that you and I go outside and God said, in order to enter heaven, you have to be able to throw a baseball to the moon. Okay? Now, if you're Roger Clemens, you probably can throw that ball a lot further than me. Amen? 
I mean, flabby, nearly 40-year-old, probably not that much arm, right? Uh, Roger Clemens is post-40, not less flabby, um, and he's got a good arm, right? He can probably throw further than me, but you know what? There will still be roughly a million miles between his baseball and the moon. A little further than that for mine. And it's equally impossible for a person to, through their own effort, come into the kingdom of God. There is no way, apart from the grace and love and mercy and power of God, for a person to come into heaven. Riches matter not at all in terms of your status before God. In fact, they make it, if anything, more difficult to humble yourself because you have less need of God to rescue you in the here and now. Now, in the last last few verses here, and I've got to move because we're running short on time. Um, verse 28, Peter says this. Peter says what everybody's thinking. Oh, yeah? It's really hard for the rich to enter heaven? I've left everything to follow you. And so have these guys. And that's true, by the way. Peter and John and James, and Peter and James and John and Andrew were all business partners together up on the Sea of Galilee. They had a fishing business, and they were prosperous enough that they had employees. When Jesus called them, it says that they left their nets with the hired men and followed Jesus. Now it probably wasn't like the equivalent of Microsoft that they walked they walked off and left, but it was still their entire livelihood. And to follow a guy who has no house, who has no visible income stream, who is wearing all the clothes that he owns, and depending on the kindness of strangers, to have something to eat and a place to stay out of the rain. Peter's saying, look, dude, we sacrificed a lot for you. And Jesus says this, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. Uh, Jesus tells them not to worry. God is going to reward you. He recognizes that their actions for what they are, the actions of men of faith, the actions of people who have placed everything they have on the bet that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for their sins. It's as if they had, you know, I don't know how many of you ever watched poker on TV, but they go all in on Jesus. I'm risking everything I got for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God and knowing Jesus. And Jesus says it's those kind of people, the people who are not going to say, well, I'll I'll get Jesus as an insurance policy for the hereafter, but I'm going to stake my life on money or on a nice car or on a good job or on my spouse to make me happy or on my children's future or something else. They're going all in for Jesus. And Jesus says that it's those kind of people, some of whom are sitting here among us, by the way. Dennis and Wendy, 
You guys are some of my heroes. You have left brothers and sisters and father and mother and houses and fields for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. And you'll be rewarded in this life and in the life to come. And everyone who does that. And by the way, if you believe the gospel, can it cost you your relationship with your family? Yes. Ask a Jewish convert to Jesus. Ask a Muslim. For that matter, ask someone who, who grew up uh, as a Japanese Shinto believer or a Buddhist whose family is everything and who, when you walk away from that to become a follower of Jesus, a lot of times they have a funeral and they put everything that used to belong to you in the casket and bury you because you are dead to them. Sometimes your faithfulness in following Christ can cost you your family. It can cost you your job. It can cost you your livelihood. It can cost you your property. And if it does, Jesus says it's worth it. You know why? Who are the brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and homes and fields? Where does that come in? Anybody look at that in text and go, where was my reward? I want you to take a look around. This is it. I have lots of mothers in this church, okay? I have lots of fathers, older men that I look up to and respect and honor. I have lots of brothers and sisters. And ideally, as we look around in the body of Christ, guess what? If you got a house, I got a house. If I got a house, you got a house. Jim and Darcy's water heater broke this week, okay? We're giving them a key. They have hot showers, okay? Not at their house, but at our house. Why? Because we're part of the body of Christ. And if I've got a house, they've got a house. If I've got a water heater, they've got a water heater. If I've got a dollar, you got a dollar. If I've got clothes, you've got clothes. Jesus says that y'all are the reward in the present age. You're going to experience persecution if you're radically following Jesus, but in the future age, you get eternal life. Amen? All right. Uh, and by the way, let me just say this, okay? I have been part of this church for almost three years now, and y'all have become my reward. You are my family, my brothers and sisters and father and mother. Thank you. I hope you feel the same way about one another. Because Jesus says that y'all are part of the reward that we all get. A hundred times as much as we gave up. Right? Um, Paul says, I has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Is eternal life worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. Whatever you have to give up compared to that is worth it. You know, again, it's like trading in your tricycle on a new Mercedes S-Class. Okay, whatever I had to give up is worth it. Who wouldn't make that swap? I would. 
In fact, anybody who wants to do that trade, see me after the service, <laughs> okay? Um, I'll be happy to have that car, right? Um, Jesus says it's worth it. And in fact, he says, last verse, verse 31, many who are first will be last and the last first. What does he mean? He means that God does not settle accounts on the 30th of the month. That things do not look in eternity like they look now. And so there are people now who have wealth and who have power and who have status and who have prestige and who have honor wherever they go. They're first. Many of those same people, when they stand before God, would give everything they have to trade places with you. Because many who are now first will be last, and many who are now last will be first. That person who mocked you because you became a follower of Jesus would give everything they have to swap what you receive in eternity because you stood for the gospel and Jesus. All right. I'm out of time, but you know what? I'm going to be gone two weeks, so I'm going to take five more minutes. (laughs) All right? (laughs) Um, Here's the deal, okay? How do you apply this text? Three things. Number one, have you ever come like a child into the kingdom of God? Have you ever placed your complete trust in Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross for your sins, and in his resurrection, giving testimony to the reality of his payment on your behalf? Have you believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus like a child and come into the kingdom of God? If you've never done that, please don't let another day go by but that you believe like a little child with everything you have that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, including you. And let today be the day of salvation. Number two, have you worshipped any gods other than the true God? You know, we don't do like uh, we do in some places in India and other places around the world uh, where you have a statue that you bow down to and offer sacrifice for. We don't have... Uh, you know, Aphrodite, the goddess of love and passion. We don't have Hermes, the god of commerce and medicine. We don't have uh, Apollo, the god of the sun and the music, right? We don't do that. But some of us, even though we are Christians, have been willing to sacrifice our families to the god of commerce all the same. And some of us have sacrificed our purity to the goddess of sex. And some of us have been willing to sacrifice all kinds of things from our lives to some idol that we have set up in our hearts. Are you worshiping any other gods than the true God? If so, repent. God will not be second place to anything else in your life. Not second to your, to your intellect, not second to your desires of your body, not second to your job, not second to your house, not second to your family. You will not be second. 
And if you have made him second to anything else, it's idolatry. Just like this rich young ruler was into. He didn't look like an idol idol worshiper, but he was. And God loves you just as he loved him and wants you to repent. Last thing, have you reflected on the magnificent grace of God? This is not something necessarily to do. This is just something that we ought to be as people. At the center of our lives, it ought to be like the hub of a wheel. The center of our lives, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he who dwells in unapproachable light, who is, whose eyes are too pure to look on sin, who is completely holy. sent his son to die on a cross, humiliated, naked, like a criminal, outside the gates of the city, for people, creatures that he made out of dirt, let's remember, on whom he put his image and likeness. He sent his son for us. Have you spent time reflecting on the magnificent grace of God? Jesus says plainly, with man, it's impossible to enter into the presence of God. But with God, all things are possible. He makes all things possible. He is both the just judge who holds up the standard of holiness and wrath against sin, and also the one who loves us so much that he sends his own son to pay the penalty and suffer the wrath of God so that you and I don't have to. He sends Jesus to cry out, I thirst, so that I don't have to cry out, I thirst in the flames of hell. The magnificent, glorious grace of God, which makes the impossible man coming to God possible. When you really get a hold of that, it will change your life. Let's pray.